Christian Twitter. Nope, it's not an alternate app to the real thing. It's a subset of a group of people who interact on Twitter. Scott Coley thinks it's not a great place to be. Well, you'll have to listen to find out why. Hello, this is Todd Lutheran with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian, with a podcast that explores the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theology. Oops, I said intersection. What is the internet coming to? Oh, well. Anyway, today on the podcast, uh, having uh, taken a a bit of an absence since interviewing David Fitch, I'm glad and uh, hopefully you will be that we've returned uh, for a discussion with Scott Coley. I have to tell you that I met Scott Coley on Twitter. That's right. I was trolling. One of the exciting things uh, for a guy getting older who's in ministry is to discover young voices, young uh, thinkers who help us think clearly, who call attention to some issues, subjects, content that, uh, um, well, we think, I think in this case, uh, ought to be someone you're paying attention to. And we are going to talk a little bit about who Scott Coley is, because he's just not uh, a name you probably uh, uh, recognize. And secondly, we're going to talk about what I think he does in terms of public uh, theology or public philosophy that's helpful to the church. And then we'll uh, wind up with uh, a little bit about a book project that he is working to get published. So any publishers out there or those with publishing connections, let me tell you, it's really, really good stuff. So uh, at the end, you can find out how to contact us here. And we would love to be instrumental in helping Scott get this book published for all of our benefit. So without further ado, we'll fill you in on what's to come on the backside. But here's my conversation with Scott Coley. Hello, this is Todd Lilton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Today on the podcast, I've been looking forward to having this guest for some time, really since I've been trolling him on Twitter. And uh, trolling not in the sense of trying to dispute or argue, but just finding what he is posting that's uh, reflective of his own thoughts and then uh, uh, connected to his writing on his uh, blog. And I've just found it resonant. And then I come to find out that he's like probably about old enough to be one of my kids. So that's also <laughs> encouraging uh, always to find young guys who you can look to and we can point to and say, man, there's a torch that's going to get carried in a good way. So uh, Scott Coley's on. Scott, I'm glad to have you on the podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. So, um, I mean, since Scott Coley isn't a run of the mill name, for most on the internet, why don't you, let's talk about Scott a little bit. Tell us your background, a little bit of your story, because I think it actually contributes. Uh, as we talked uh, on the phone oh, a couple of months ago, uh, it kind of contributes to kind of what, what you're re- really doing and, and um, kind of your aim and your goals. So tell us a little sure. bit. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, so um, yeah, like I, like I told you when you invited me to be on the podcast and I saw that your principal audience is pastors, um, I, uh, I'm not exactly sure, you know, what, what I might have to offer, uh, pastors, but I, but I trust that you see something there and I'm happy to, to talk with you about it. Um, that being said, I do consider myself, um, sort of, um, one of your tribe, uh, because I do come from a long line of, 
uh, pastors and people working in full-time ministry. So, um, yeah, my, I, I briefly, my, my great-grandfather uh, was a Baptist minister in Arkansas, and then he later moved to D.C., but he was a part of what came to be called the Jonesboro Church Wars. You can find this on the internet. And um, he survived two assassination attempts, uh, one involving a machine gun. Uh, so wow. yeah, there's that. And then his son, um, my grandfather, who would have been a toddler at that time, uh, ended up being, um, a Southern Baptist pastor in the Washington DC area. Um, and he was a pastor at, uh, one church, Montrose Baptist church for 39 years. Wow. And uh, he was also on the board of trustees at Southeastern, uh, during the, during the big CR. Yeah. Um, and well, of course, not for the entirety of it, but uh, but right. he was on the board actually during the the heady days of the conservative resurgence, and um, yeah, and my my wife's dad is a is a pastor. Um, my dad's in ministry, so yeah, um, I am a uh, so so much for my family background. Um, I am a uh, lecturer, a full time lecturer at Mount Saint Mary's University. I should say, incidentally, in case it isn't obvious, uh, I'm not here representing the university and uh, using my own. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so I teach philosophy. Um, typically, uh, I so I teach history of philosophy, um, ancient through contemporary. That's part of the core curriculum here. And um, I also teach courses in moral philosophy and political philosophy and uh, logic. I do some moral epistemology, that kind of stuff. Uh, my wife and I just welcomed our first child uh, about, let's see, he is a month and a half and some change. And he is, uh, well, I was just telling a couple of my buddies the other day, I was fully prepared to pretend to be interested in the baby. <laughs> Uh, qua baby, right? Um, and uh, it turns out that no, no pretending has been necessary. He's an awesome guy. So. Yeah, that's a whole lot of fun. That's a whole lot of fun. Incidentally, that's kind of what we've kind of uh, stilled our our get together about. We, you know, first baby and lots to get ready for, and summer and prep and all that. So, I'm um, I'm glad that uh, baby arrived well and doing well, and y'all are well and working into fatherhood just just uh, nicely. So. Um, you know, I, when, when we talked and, and then you gave just a, a bit of your, uh, personal bio family history, I, I know that when we kind of had a conversation about like, so what do I have to offer? Uh, I think that I, I want to set the table by saying that one of the things I've noticed, I've been doing this, uh, a, a little over 30 years, not podcasting, but pastoring and been in, involved in ministry for a little over 30 years. And one of the reasons I started this podcast was because I, I engaged um, a, a, a number of instances where it seemed like um, we, we just didn't think very well. The, when I looked at your bio early on and you taught logic, I thought, goodness, we could have a series on the ways uh, logical fallacies show up in pastoral argumentation. Um, I actually have a, a friend local who used to be a pastor and now considers himself uh, no longer a Christian. We, uh, but we get together every now and again, and he teaches and has taught logic in uh, uh, the local uh, 
what we would call a community college to your college setting. Um, and then te- has taught argumentation and literature at a four college university uh, in Oklahoma city. And from time to time, when I see that, I'll just, I'll just ask him to pen a little guest post. Let's, let's give us an illustration about this particular logical fallacy, because, you know, some of us may have been like me, been undergrads in the eighties and forgot that we shouldn't make sweeping generalizations. Mm-hmm. Um, or we thought herring was just a kind of fish, you know, mm-hmm. so, um, or bird rather, and, and so, or both. And so um, it, it, it has shown up there. So then to find someone who writes with uh, some clarity who, who's able to point out uh, uh, the ways that uh, we miss the unintended consequences of the positions that we hold is mm-hmm. pretty refreshing because um, we are in an increasingly, I think, astute world that understands and can pick apart our arguments, particularly when they're sloppy. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that that in itself, uh, reading your blog, for example, would be um, a, a, a welcome refresher course, maybe for some who want to do better thinking through particular issues, because you're not shying away from some of the current um, kerfuffles that are going on in, in, in this case, say, SBC life. Mm-hmm. And um, that tends to be the kind of the most difficult group to break uh, in terms of, you know, you're really not thinking clearly about this. Uh, do you understand the position that you've taken leads to this particular conclusion? And sure. um, that, that generally brings more heat than light because we get pretty defensive on our positions. So I think from that standpoint, and then, and then of course, later in our conversation, we'll get to what I think is a really, <clears throat> uh, uh, I, I, I look forward to you publishing this book proposal uh, particularly since here on Pathological, we've completely capitulated to critical theory. Um, <laughs> no, that's not true. Um, but but that but that's kind of the reason why I think your voice is of value, and and particularly, um, and again, not to not not to be tongue in cheek or make light of it, but it but. I have found at my age an interest in finding younger voices that I can hopefully encourage and help people hear because, you know, one of these days um, it, your voices are going to be the ones that are, are leading even more prominently than, than others. And hopefully we're more thoughtful than what I've found in my experience engaging peers thinking about their arguments. That sounds a little bit elitist. It sounds a little bit arrogant, but you know, when you try to subtly point out the consequence of a given argument and how it fails uh, again, it, it's more, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to block you as a friend. I'm going to call you out and say that you've left the faith or you've forsaken the faith of your fathers when really all we're doing is say, can you think better? And so. Yeah. 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 Um, I have been so that, so, that, that brings two things to mind about my experience of Twitter. So I um, opened my Twitter account a little less than a year ago um, to just sort of like stalk publishers as I'm looking to publish this book. And my wife um, suggested to me, oh, I guess the beginning of the summer that I should really like, you know, tweet some stuff. And um, you know, as is often, I should send your wife a thank you card. 
Right. Right. Well, and the thing about the thing is the whole book project was was her idea also, because I was, you know, I'm like walking around the house fuming about things. And she said, either you write a book about this or you have to stop talking. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> you were, if you write a book about it, I'll, I'll, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it as long as you want. But, yeah. um, you know, I thought maybe I might write something in political philosophy when I'm like 60, you know, and I've had some life experience, but I, then, you know, um, my wife sort of helped me see that like, yeah, I have, you know, there's, of course, so much I don't know. And, you know, I'll have so much more perspective when I'm, you know, double the age that I am now. Um, but uh, there are some things that I definitely do know. Mm-hmm. And right. those things um, are things that, um, you know, a lot of folks seem to be acting like they don't know. And so perhaps I can offer uh, some of those things might be helpful. But, but yeah, I mean, the two, the two things that come to mind in my experience of Twitter are... Uh, um, one that, uh, yeah, a lot of folks seem to be pretty, um, fragile, I guess, when it, when it comes to, um, uh, disagreements. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, I mean, not, you know, I'm not talking about when people start exchanging insults, you know, naturally people are going to shy away from that. I just mean like, Hey, do you realize that this is what's going on? I mean, it's pretty, it, it's, you know, it's pretty remarkable the stuff that'll get you blocked and the stuff that won't. I, d- I haven't quite figured out the, the, the calculus there yet. But the other thing, um, uh, you know, uh, that I have to concede, despite my resistance to sort of engaging in this really toxic cesspool that we call Twitter, um, is uh, that I have been hugely encouraged by the number of, of folks I've come across in older generations uh, than mine, um, and in particular, um, pastors, Southern Baptist pastors of say, you know, your is it still the case that the average Southern Baptist church is like seventy people, something like that? So you yeah, know, I think you know, uh, it used to be at least back when I did my DMN that the uh, across the spectrum it was uh, less than a hundred in worship. Uh, marked most. So somewhere around 70 to 100 is is just universally the average size church. Sure. So so the number of people I've come across who are pastors at, you know, like your median sized Southern Baptist church who are alive um, to these sorts of um, really pressing questions in our political community. Um, and aren't they aren't just sort of towing the 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 standard um, party line. Uh, if you'd like. So that's, that, that has been a real bright spot. Good, good. Well, maybe, maybe one way to um, set out, you've used the phrase uh, political philosophy um, and um, talked about the history of philosophy and, and I'm kind of pressing you, I don't want to press you into like my mold for you, but what you're doing on your blog and what you're doing in your book is really kind of political theology. It's, it's public theology in, in my book you have a background in systematic theology and philosophy. So maybe it'd be important uh, and, and maybe it'd be just remedial for some, but maybe it'd be important because most of the time seminary experience doesn't include any um, uh, course on political theology uh, or mm-hmm. even political philosophy. Mm-hmm. So we might do historical theology. We might do systematic theology. We might do biblical theology. Those are generally the three large categories mm-hmm. of you know, theological work, 
but but here we're talking about the the I don't, I don't know if I want to use the word cross pollination, but we're using using and and if we use the word intersection, we'll get trolled. Yeah. So be careful there, but but the intersection really at, at political philosophy and theology. And so I don't know if you're uh, familiar with uh, say, um, and I'm going to go blank, which is going to be an indication of my age. Um, he teaches in Denver. Um, he actually is an editor on on the website Political. Uh, let's see, is it political philosophy, or political theology? Um, he's in his seventies. Is it Jean Luc Marion? No, I, I've, I've read some of Marion, but I'm trying to think of uh, a contemporary guy. Oh, he's going to kill me. Uh, he wrote a book in uh, um, in the series that um, uh, James K. Smith did his little series that Caputo did one and James K did one and Globo Christ is the title of the book. And I'm just drawing a blank. Anyhow, um, uh, I've had some conversations with him and, and um, uh, it's been, it's been fruitful. And so maybe you could help the listener kind of draw out what we would be talking about if we were saying something like we're talking about political theology uh, public theology is maybe too general of a term that I want to kind of use. So if, if we were going to, if we were going to try to tell someone, Hey, we're, we're talking today about political theology, how would you kind of receive that and then kind of help cast that back as someone who I think that's what you're practicing myself. Sure. Sure. Okay. So I should say just by way of framing things out that um, I'm, I'm, I may be, I, that characterization may be entirely fair. I'm perhaps more comfortable because of where my, um, where my training is. I'm, I'm perhaps more comfortable in saying that I'm doing political philosophy that is um, uh, within the boundaries set out by Orthodox Christian theology. Hmm. Um, so my deep expertise is in, is in philosophy. Um, and I studied theology basically strictly for the purpose of learning about the Christian tradition and, and making sure that my work, um, you know, stayed within the pale of, of that tradition. Um, so yeah, I, I would say, uh, I I would say political philosophy in, in the, in the Christian framework or from the Christian perspective, um, taking Christian presuppositions into the realm of political philosophy. Um, so, for example, one of the things that really motivates my work um, is, uh, well, may, uh, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that directly, but I'll take a step back, right, and, and point out um, what I and my interlocutors who um, I would disagree with, I think, what, what we all agree on. Um, and then uh, we could um, sort of... Uh, use that plateau to, to point out where we disagree and therefore what my motivation is right, and, and how I approach things. So I think what we agree on, I think actually what all human beings would agree on is that the point or the purpose of human existence is to be human well, <laughs> to just put it very broadly, right? Um, if you're a human being reflecting on your existence and you think that you're about something other than being human well, then I, I think you're confused. Right now, of course, we have people across different uh, times and cultures, et cetera, have very different ideas about what it is to be human well. 
right? Um, but uh, Christians, and this is another thing I think um, that, you know, all of the folks that, that I'm in conversation with would agree about. Um, and I say I'm in conversation with them, I'm speaking sort of figuratively because I can't really get <laughs> them to respond to me on Twitter anyway. Right, right. But um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I think the thing we would all uh, agree on as, as believers is that a very important part of what it is to be human well um, and what sets us apart from people who aren't Christians, right, is that um, a, a very important part of what it is to be human well is to love God and love others. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and in order to live out that conception of what it is to be human well, um, we have to live within a political community that um, somehow engenders or enables us to uh, to live that way. Right. And this is um, if I could dwell on this point for just a moment. Sure. sure. Um, you know, Aristotle says basically that in order to be human well. Um, you have to live in a good society, right? You have to live in a good city. Um, and I, you know, I taught that for years and I was like, okay, I think I know what he's up to. I don't find it particularly interesting, but like this, this was his view and I guess it makes sense, right? Um, but in reflecting on, um, I, I think really the, 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 the insight there um, became much uh, it came really into sharp focus in reflecting on how I'm going to raise my son. Mm. Um, because, for example, I think that, um, and this is, you know, this is, isn't news to anyone, right? But but um, smartphones and social media, et cetera, are toxic. They're toxic. I mean, like they're actually bad for your health, mm. right? And we are we are engaged in a massive social experiment. Uh, the cons- the consequences of which um, no one. Uh, foresees, right? I mean, we have no idea what's going to happen. Correct. Um, where we say, all right, let's give everyone a supercomputer uh, that allows them to be gotten in touch with at any second of any day. And let's let roughly 50% of their social interactions take place on a platform that is designed strictly for the purpose of selling our attention to advertisers. Mm. Well, let's just see what happens. Mm. Right. Okay, so so that's that's like bad for your health, right? Mm. At the same time, part of what it is to be human well and live a healthy human life is to be social. And the difficulty you run into, right, is that um, you have to you, you sort of have to pick your poison. Mm. You know, do I want to do I want to be unhealthy in that I am shutting myself away from a lot like where a lot of the social interaction happens? Or do I want to be unhealthy because I'm going to introduce this technology into my life that I know is really bad for my brain? Right. Right. Um, right. Okay. So I say all of that to say this. Um, I think that um, where I'm going to agree with the other sort of believers in the conversation is that um, what it is to an important part of what it is to be human well is to love God and love others. Um, and that um, in order to do that, um, just like in order to live out any conception of what it is to be human well, we have to have um, a political community that uh, engenders that kind of uh, conception of human flourishing. Mm-hmm. I think where I disagree with uh, with my interlocutors is about exactly what it looks what what our political community would have to look like 
um, in order for this to be the case, or to put it another way, um, I think I disagree with them about exactly which ways our political community fails to be the kind of environment that um, allows us to be human well by loving God and loving others. Hmm. Um, it seems to me, and I, I hope you'll, uh, you know, I'm happy to be corrected if you think I'm wrong about this, but um, it seems to me that in their view, um, the way that our political community um, might be altered to make it uh, more conducive to being human well on our shared conception. Again, we agree about that. Right? Mm -hmm. I think the, the ways they think our com political community should be changed in order to make it more conducive to being human well is that, um, look, we'd all be uh, better off if more people acted like Christians. Mm. Right. <laughs> and I just don't care about that. I, I don't see, I, I, I don't see any basis for that in scripture. Right. Um, I don't, I don't see any basis for it in reason. Right. Um, I, look, I mean, why are we so alarmed that lost people act like lost people? Right. What on earth does that have to do with uh, uh, me living out my, my faith in the world? Right. Um, and I guess what's left is sort of my positive conception. And I suppose that's what, what we'll get into. So, yeah, I, th I think that um, uh, maybe um, I'm. Um, I may be impressing you and what I've read of you and in terms of this book project. I'm pressing you into a particular kind of niche that may be too, um, <clears throat> maybe too tight a fit. Mm -hmm. But I do think that the idea that someone can help us think about uh, social contracts in a political setting and, and the Christian role in that particular environment um, is a an act of political theology because I think most common uh, the parlance of political has actually been subverted by partisan and sure. as as such I think that if we could recapture what we mean when we talk politics in the positive sense which someone who's steeped in political philosophy can help us do because we need a politic. We, we, we need a, an, an agreed arrangement of how we will function and live together. And that we could all agree that the, the central basis is that we can all contribute to human flourishing, whether theist or non-theist, re really is a good place of beginning or good presupposition, as I think you referred to it. But trying to get to the psyche of where we are in 2019, when the when the word politic is used, it's an immediate turnoff, which actually subverts what Jesus was doing in presenting a politic of the kingdom to borrow a Hauerwas, for instance. Mm -hmm. And and so um, his wasn't his use of that term is not to um, take over culture, mm -hmm. but to illustrate how the kingdom ethic, if you will, uh, subverts and undermines all the ways that human flourishing is thwarted by those who go about, as you said it, your inter interlocutors who would practice it a different way. Mm -hmm. 
So the idea of practicing uh, a faithfulness in a different way actually from time to time contributes to, and here's the other thing we'll get trolled for, contributes to systems being constructed in a way that actually work against human flourishing for particular groups. So for instance, uh, you know, not to, not to try to, again, press something you've written into, you know, where, where I want it to go, mm-hmm. but your little piece, um, SBC women who work and the ultra complementarians they support, mm-hmm. you know, to me is there's an agreed upon politic uh, by some that this is what would produce the greatest amount of human flourishing if women would cook and men would work. And um, and so the consequence of the challenge is, is to say that if we're going to be so restrictive in the application of a complementarian vision, we better be careful because at the cultural moment in which we live, there are a lot of women who contribute to the salaries of the men who tell them that they should be cooking. That's right. That's right. Inside the home. Inside the home. Right. Yeah. So that, that's kind of the thing, kind of my, you know, kind of how I've, I've received kind of what I've read you've written that, that tend to intersect with pastoral work in that, in that um, no one probably ever thought that standing up as an ultra complementarian and making these wildly fundamentalist assertions ever thought for a minute that there are women who are in their churches that are tithing, helping contribute to their salary. Right. And the salary of the seminary uh, faculty who taught them to, 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 to talk that way. Um, and, I, and, I, and I should say, I mean, the, the, the seminary, well, two things. Number one, since I work at a Catholic institution, I should be clear that when we talk about complementarianism in this context, we're talking about a very particular yes. uh, usage of that term. Yes. I, I would, I, I dare say that's restricted to pretty much uh, Southern Baptist conversations and, and, you know, some reformed, like Presbyterian right. type. type right. Um, uh, right. So just so we're, we're, we're clear on that. And the other thing to clarify is that um, we're not talking about a huge number of seminary faculty. No. Right. Um, it's it's really, you know, a handful or a dozen uh, that I can tell who are really pressing this line. Um, and, you know, I would be impressed if they would say, you know what, um, I'm going around talking about how far short of the ideal this particular practice is, namely women working outside of the home. And uh, I'm actually profiting from that practice that I think is like far short of the ideal. So I think I should take a pay cut. I think that would be impressive right. uh, or, or just respectful. Or consistent. Right. Consistent. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So, I, you know, I, I, the, the reason I decided to approach it that way and um, yeah, you know, I mean, Twitter is what it is, but like some people were sort of like um, they responded to it by saying, uh, well, all sorts of crazy things, but but nevertheless, the reason I decided to, to take this tack is, in my experience, these folks who take this line, even unfortunately, folks who, who teach in Southern Baptist seminaries, um, again, just a few of them, will just proof text you into oblivion, right? Right. And so I thought, like, well, how can I use my training to sort of press a different side of this conversation mm-hmm. sure. where I'm not going to get sucked into this, like, and they just like they won't they they won't even engage anything you you say. No, and it's it's no. maddening sometimes. But no, and I think that's the I think that's what problematizes the entire situation. And while I appreciate your focus and drawing attention to the fact that we are talking about um, maybe a, a, a smaller group of people than than is really experienced, my experience is is that um, 
this group has the loudest megaphone. Oh, sure. And, and, and the consequence of that is that they're influencing more average people outside of their own churches than they are necessarily uh, if they were restricted to no uh, internet access, no podcast access, no uh, blog access, you know, no, in other words, no media outlet for them to espouse this, then sure. maybe we could get by with, with, you know, kind of localizing it to a few who teach that. The, the sad realities are this actually has a long systemic uh, root in Southern Baptist life, in the more conservative branches of every denomination, that we still see, um, you know, uh, anecdotal evidence that um, even what someone might consider themselves even more progressive maybe than they were in their you know early days, mm-hmm. will make remarks that are just terribly offensive. Uh, w- without even so much as a slight recognition because of the familiarity that they have with talking about those things. Sure. That's a woman's work. Uh, and that could be applied to, you know, any number of individualized uh, notions. And I think that's really the thing that, that catches my attention. I, you know, Scott McKnight has a, uh, and I can't recall the term, but I interviewed Emily, Emily Hunter McGowan, um, who um, was a, uh, Southern Baptist. She actually um, uh, helped edit uh, the women's Criswell study Bible in the day. Okay. Uh, her husband was a Southern Baptist youth minister, at my best friend uh, in high school's church in Texas. Now they're, they're both uh, in um, a, an American uh, Episcopal church that Todd Hunter is the bishop of. And um, uh, and she and I were talking about that. She did her PhD work in Chicago at Dayton and on the Quiverful movement. So her interest in complementarianism and how that talks, how, how that really is actually a, a euphemism for mild patriarchy. She wasn't willing to go the route of full-blown egalitarian. So she liked a, a description Scott McKnight used that probably fits what you were referencing earlier at in complementarity in, in, in your frame of reference is way different, you know, mm-hmm. than what, what I'm going to find in, in say, you know, many Southern Baptist enclaves. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I think that, I think that's kind of, you, you've evidenced kind of some of the political dynamic at work there. And I don't mean partisan dynamic, you know, the political dynamic. Yeah, right, sure, sure. If, if we're going to live together well and work toward flourishing, you know, sometimes you actually have to pick apart the ways in which systems have been constructed um, that have disadvantaged women on any number of levels to, mm-hmm. to such that they haven't even been able to vote for what, a hundred years. Uh, um, coming up on the centennial of, of women's suffrage, it was right. uh, 1920. Yeah. So in that regard, you know, some of those, you know, it's like trying to say that there's no, no really uh, that all the Jim Crow laws are dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You know, all you have to do goes through um, any sort of, um, uh, statute books in the South and they're still on the books. Now they not be practiced, but they're still on the books, you know? So, so that's still engendered and wired into someone's political understanding of right. how we're going to live together. Yeah. And that's, I mean, like perhaps we want to circle back to that, you know, it, uh, um, issues of, of race vis-a-vis um, laws that are uh, no longer on the books, but I, I want to, I, I think it's important to, uh, there are just two things I want to know in connection with this. Yeah. 
uh, complementarianism, uh, patriarchy type business. And, and, and I should say, I mean, actually, I guess there are three things. The first is that I did, you know, I did not at all anticipate getting involved in these kinds of conversations right. prior to, to getting on Christian Twitter. Right. Right? Because <laughs> I just, I had no clue that we, this was. I need to write that down. I, I just, I was stunned. Yeah. Stunned. Yeah. yeah. And um, uh, yeah. I'll just leave, I'll, I'll leave that point at yeah, that. Yeah, good. Um, good point. Well, my wife sort of laughed at me because she was like, yeah, I mean, yeah, this is a thing. <laughs> and, 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 yeah, it's a, yeah, and yeah, it's an issue of justice. Right. Right. Which when right. I, when that finally dawned on me, my, you know, my wife was just smiling and not, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I th- so two things that stand out um, here are number one, um, I find that the folks who talk a lot about their complementarian views on Christian Twitter actually have two positions here that are salient, right? Mm. One is the one that they talk about, the complementarianism. Mm. And the other sort of um, background position is that their position on complementarianism is super important. Right. 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 And, and, and frankly, I think Jesus disagrees, and I'll tell you why. Look yeah. at Look at what Jesus uh, says um, in the in the context of the story with Mary and Martha, right? Where um, uh, forgive me, I, I, yes. I don't, I don't, I, I studied systematic theology, not biblical studies. So right, right, right. All broad strokes for me. You're um, good. It, it was it was Mary who was working, or it was Martha. Uh, Martha was working really Martha hard. Was, Martha was working right, and so basically, Martha wants to have this complementarian conversation with Jesus. Right. 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 And, and G, what Jesus ends up doing is he doesn't actually take a position other than to say that which position you take on it is far less important. Right. Than, um than hanging out with Jesus and and uh, and so forth. So that's a, so that's a great read. Right. So so if you take these two positions that the complementarians take, right, the, the explicit position, which is, you know, their view on the role of women and then the implicit position, which is the importance of having this view. On the role of women, I mean, so important that they're willing to say, if you don't agree with their position on the role of women, then you don't respect the authority of scripture. I mean, come on. Right, right. Come right. on. Are you right, serious? Right, 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 um, uh, right. So that background implicit position that it's like super important where you come down on this, yeah. I think is explicitly refuted yeah. by Christ yeah. in, his, in his answer to, to Martha. Like, yes. um, why are we even talking about this? Right. Um, and, then oh, the, yeah. and then the other thing to, to, to come to come to bring it back to questions of justice, right, is that I just find it bitterly ironic that the folks who feel very strongly that um, millennials in particular um, need to move out of their mom's basement <laughs> and uh, get a job and shave and put on a clean shirt, right? Um, that millennials in particular need to support a family on one income. And yet they see no, no difficulty with restrictionist uh, zoning regulations. They see no problem with growing disparities in income. Um, Like how exactly do you think that's going to happen, bro? Right. Right. I mean, like, like what do you think is going on with millennials? Do you think we're, do you think we're just like, like ontologically inferior so that like we just like we're just inherently lazy yeah and we just like love living in our mom's basement right 
like presumably it's not a good idea for me to start my family in my mom's basement, right? I mean, like, sure, if I end up losing my housing or whatever, but it's nice, it's nice to have a place to crash, but sure. like that's not plan A, man. Right. Like, right. um, you know, and oh, I know it's probably it's probably a good thing to have like healthcare. Right, right. Ideally. Yeah. I gotta I gotta tell this quick, real quick story. So um, I'm talking about this stuff in one of my ethics classes, you know, on in the segment on political philosophy. And um, this was, I mean, this just stands out to me. It, it was stunning to, to watch. So we get onto the subject of healthcare and this one girl, it's, you know, the, the college where I teach is like tight knit community. And, and this particular group of students had taken, um, I mean, it's, you know, we got a couple thousand undergrads we're D1 athletics, but this, but this, uh, so this isn't the norm, but this particular group of students had taken, I think this was the third, in some cases, the fourth course they had taken with me. So they were pr- pretty close. Um, and so, the, you know, they're apt to share more. Mm-hmm. And so this girl uh, sitting in the back row uh, at one point, uh, point uh, she notes that she has a chronic health condition as a result of which she is permitted to stay on her parents' health insurance indefinitely. Now, I should say, as an aside, I have no idea whether it's actually the case right. that she can stay on her parents' health insurance indefinitely. That's not the point. So she said she has this chronic health condition. She can stay on her parents' insurance indefinitely. And if it wasn't every single kid in the room, it was almost every single kid. They all turned around, and I heard a couple of them audibly say, like, there was a gasp. And I heard a couple of them audibly say, lucky. Think about that, man. Think about that. Right? you got a bunch of kids. They're getting ready to graduate from college. They're doing all the right things, man. They're doing right. all the stuff you're supposed to do. Right. And they're right. envious of their classmates' right. chronic health condition. Right. Right. So they can. Have- it guarantees her that she's going to have uh, health benefits. Right. 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 I mean, that is, that is. Right. That's not okay, man. No, it's not. No, it's not. I, I you know, I, when you were, when you're describing, you know, the, the way you receive, uh, criticism and pushback as a millennial reminded me of, I, I, I learned that we are friends with Ben Cole. I don't know if that's condolences or if that's, you know, a good mark, but, but, you know, talk about uh, moving out of your basement, you know, when, when we were kind of back in the day doing a little a blogging together, you know, we, we were kind of the group that they were telling that we should move out of our you know, mom's basement and out of our house coats and get off our computers. You know, that was the criticism on Christian, uh, social media. I'm sure that would be good for them. So it was funny. It's funny to see it come come around that that just gets extended generationally down. You know that mm-hmm. you know, everyone lives in their mother's basement and everyone's always in their house coat and everyone's you know you know sapping off of of somebody else. And that seems that you know that that's a, a fallacy in its own right. But um, it, it's it's kind of ironic to listen to you. You know, really point out that the the key issues that that. Were, were missed are uh, issues of justice. And so the idea that you would literally want to wade into Christian Twitter with a book proposal on social justice must mean that you're just a little bit wanky. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. So um, uh, yeah, the term social justice is, um, is a little, is a little strange, I guess. Yeah, um, it is. Uh, and I'm, so I am, uh, 
it's, it's perfectly natural to describe the project as it, I don't I don't mean to be it seems like I'm pushing back on it. I don't think <laughs> but, oh, no. um, it's natural to describe what I'm doing as political theology, uh, sure. I suppose, and it's natural to describe what I'm doing as, as social justice. Um, but because that term is so vexed, and because, frankly, some folks have, whether through their own ignorance or whether it's it's uh, intentional, have really brought a tremendous amount of confusion on exactly what that term means, particularly in the Christian context. Mm-hmm. Um, I prefer to use the term institutional justice. Ah. Um, and and um, that has to do with, well, I, I think a key difference between my position and, and the position of, of um, you know, folks who, uh, who tend to, well, bring confusion about what social justice is and, and really um, object to it. I think a key difference between my, my position and theirs is that I think that their, um, their moral horizons are tethered to individual piety. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they are, as a consequence, they are blind to the um, moral salience of systemic injustice. Oh, yeah. Um, but you've been reading too much critical theory, so that's just ridiculous. Yeah, okay. So that's another point of, okay, so so um, I, do, I do have some background in critical theory, and, and if I, uh, there are some, some folks who, who these guys on Christian t- Twitter tend to lump in with critical theory, like Foucault, yeah. um, who was, is a philosopher. Right. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so if I include those folks, um, then I guess I'm, I'm even more familiar with critical theory. I'm not well studied in critical race theory or yeah. intersectionality. Um, but in any case, be that as it may, um, uh, I there's this there's this lumping together of like critical race theory and intersectionality with concerns about justice and economic right. justice. Right. Now, it may be that folks who do CRT and intersectionality and all that um, are interested in, in appropriating some of the language uh, about justice and political philosophy, et cetera. Um, but that doesn't mean that if I'm talking about justice, I'm necessarily talking about critical race theory, right? I mean, Plato wasn't a critical race theorist, was he? No. No, not at all. Um, no, I think, I, and, and I, and I, th- I think that's pretty helpful distinction because the truth of the matter is, is, is it would be helpful for someone to hear, uh, and, 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 you know, you can correct me at this point, but I remembered the Carl I was thinking. I think of Carl Raschke, and and I, I listened to Carl a few years back in a presentation where he actually was talking about uh, uh, justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a, 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 a he's a philosopher. You know, he, he's he's a, he would be like you, educated as a philosopher. He has he he just got deep roots. He he everybody you probably have read he's met. You know, and and uh, and Carl uh, emphasized you know uh, justice in an entirely different frame than gets tossed around on Christian Twitter, mm-hmm. so that when this pejorative phrase social justice gets used it's 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 almost vacuous in terms of a a coordinate you could point back to philosophically mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i and i think that that i think that that is another place it becomes helpful when you look at your book proposal your book project 
is that it it stamps out a way to couch justice in that politic equal to human flourishing in a good way um, that is our uh, agreed upon goal and aim and and that it it is offensive actually to see that demeaned in, in any sort just because um it does strike you at the point of your personal piety. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Is that? Yeah. So, so um, yeah, sometimes when I hear folks talking about social justice, I, I'm just like, wow, I don't, I mean, I have no idea what I, what that is. I don't, right. I don't. So right. justice, the term justice, um, really in its most, it, well, it describes um, a number of, related ideas right but but the common thread is that justice is achieved when we get what we deserve mm-hmm. when we get what we are owed and we take nothing beyond what we are mm-hmm. owed um and i think it's helpful to distinguish justice from charity because uh mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. sometimes in in this in these contexts you hear the the claim that you know what the uh, justice warriors are up to is really, you know, government-sponsored charity. And um, at least, at least in, you know, I can't speak for everyone who invokes the term justice. I have no, you know, a lot of people right. say a lot of things and a lot of people are dumb. So I, I don't like, I don't get to make of all that. Right. Um, but uh, uh, yeah. Um, when I use the term um, justice, I'm not just, I'm, I'm describing something that's very different from charity. So if I give you $20 and I don't owe you $20. That's charity. Hmm. Right. If I give you $20 and I owe you $20, then that's justice. Hmm. Right. Because you've got the $20 you're owed. I'm out the $20 that I owed. Right. Um, and um, yeah, so, so justice is achieved when we, when we get what we deserve and um an institution, because I'm about institutional justice, right? An institution is just a set of rules or traditions or standing practices that set out who deserves what within a given sphere. So we are in modernity. And this is why it's so important, I think, to adjust our gaze from this really narrow focus on individual piety, because life in the 21st century is just, I mean, institutions are ambient. You know, at any given moment, you are... Um, in the midst of any number of overlapping and interlocking institutions, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the United States is an institution. The Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, is a is a distinct but related institution. Mm-hmm. The state of Missouri is an institution. Mm-hmm. Um, the family is an institution. The church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, Major League Baseball is an institution. The game of baseball is a distinct but related institution, right? right? And um, institutions have rules governing who deserves what, who gets to do this, who gets to say that, who gets what paycheck, um, who has this authority, et cetera, in any given context. So in the game of baseball, you get three, you, you get three strikes, and what do you have coming to you? I'm out. You're, you're out. Out. Right? Out. Um, Major League Baseball uh, – incorporates that. And then there are other things like if you want to be a major league baseball player, there are certain substances you can't consume. Mm -hmm. If you get caught, here's your punishment. Um, Well, uh, um, when an institution's rules are violated, often um, the institution has a way of um, addressing that violation 
uh, within the institution itself, mm -hmm. right? Uh, as when Major League Baseball uh, levies a fine or uh, suspends a player, et cetera, mm -hmm. right? But sometimes uh, these questions about whether uh, an institution's rules have been violated um, cannot be resolved within the institution itself. And in that case, we have higher institutions that uh, have the authority to settle these disputes. And we call those higher institutions courts. Mm -hmm. And our courts are governed by laws. And our laws, right? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm assuming uh, that your, your listeners are, you know, have taken civics, right? So, sure. so um, I'll, I'll cut to the chase here, right? Um, but basically, um, our, uh, our laws are uh, written by legislators who ultimately uh, answer to an electorate, right? And so ultimately, questions of institutional justice uh, come down to uh, questions about what it is for our public institutions. Let's say, just to take a concrete example, what is it for Congress to administer justice? In other words, what does it mean to say that a law written by Congress is a just law? Now, some people think that, well, look, the law determines what is just, and Congress decides what the law is. Therefore, Congress decides what is just. Hmm. Um, in other words, there's no objective truth about justice. There's no objective truth about um what we owe to each other and 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 what we deserve. Right. Um, I think that that view is wrong. I think that there is objective truth about what people deserve and what we owe to each other. And I think that our laws are just laws only insofar as our laws conform to the truth, the objective truth about what is just. Mm -hmm. So for example, you know, I've got theological and philosophical reasons for holding this view. Mm -hmm. Um uh, um, for, and, and so here's a philosophical reason for holding this view. Um, you point to women's suffrage, right? Um, uh, I think that um, justice, there's objective truth about justice, right? That's true at all times, in all places, for right. all people, and so on, right? Um, uh, uh, I don't think that the truth about what is just changed from 1919 to 1920, when women were given the right to vote in federal elections. Correct. Um, rather, I think that justice was the same and that our political institutions became more just. Yes, yes. When women were given the right to vote. And, and moreover, the way we talk suggests that there's objective truth about justice, right? Because what, it, what was the argument for women's suffrage? Um, look, the laws are bad. They should be changed. Why? Because because women are being denied this thing that they are owed, namely the right to vote, right? And so this appeal to justice, this objective truth about justice, is, is look, I mean, it's precisely what we argue about when we argue about politics. If there's no objective truth about justice, then what are we arguing about? Right. Right? It's, it's just, it, all it is is a power struggle if there's no objective truth about justice, mm -hmm. which is why that position is called political realism. Right. Whoever's in charge makes, makes the rules, and there's nothing beyond that. Um, and I think that Christian political participation should serve uh, the effort to um, bring our public institutions into conformity with the objective truth about justice. And why is that? Why is that? A, why is why is it that Christians need to be the ones that are about this? Right? 
Um, well, because who's most likely to get overlooked in, in our society, right? We all enter into the political arena and we uh, converse with others about what we are owed and what we owe to them. In other words, we, we try to figure out what justice is, right? That's what our political debates are about. Right. Who gets what, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, well who's, who is most likely to be overlooked in that political discourse? It's orphans and widows, man. Right. So if we don't stand up for them, who's going to? Mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah, and, and, and the Bible tells us to also. <laughs> oh, yeah, there, there is that. Yeah, yeah, there is that. Yeah, and, and I, I, I really like the shift uh, to institutional, because while I think that, um, especially for a target audience, let me let me back up. Especially for a particular targeted audience, the reason, aside from I think your well-formed arguments as to why that makes sense, I think the idea um, we we're not we pastors, although we should be more educated in systems theory and systems thinking, the old idea of systemic justice is lost. You throw that phrase out on Christian Twitter, and immediately it's code for "Oh, we know what we know what you are." You know, you're. But institutional, it's it's a it's a harder word to obfuscate. It's a harder it's a harder reality than just to say, "Well, I don't even know what you mean by systemic injustice." Mm -hmm. I mean, so when you're when you're you know opting to talk about justice in an institutional frame uh, or institutional register, it, it really does help. And particularly in seeing kind of all of the intersected ways that we might be involved in multiple institutions at a given moment in time. Mm -hmm. And I thought your other, your other, you know, I, I kept thinking as you were kind of describing, you know, this, I, I kept going back to your original, one of your original illustrations about, you know, um, a cell phone. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and the, the realities that are associated with now, how do I instruct my son? Mm -hmm. What am I going to teach my son mm -hmm. about all the ways in which he participates in these particular institutional environs and what sort of human being will I hope he is formed to be? Well, well, that, that's exactly it. Right. I'm really glad that you bring that up. Right. Because, because my, my point in that, in that little, you know, vignette, right. Was, was to say like, Look, it matters what kind of society you live in as to whether you can um, really be human well, by which I as a Christian mean loving God and loving others, right? It matters, it matters what kinds of uh, institutions you're surrounded by. And for example, the way that um, uh, the way that the institutions surrounding healthcare administer medical care in our society literally makes it impossible for me to follow Christ's command to go and do likewise. Right. Right. And re referring there, of course, to uh, the example of the Good Samaritan. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. so, you know, you, I mean, you've read what I, I sent you, what I, you know, the research I did on this, right. And, um, uh, uh, the the uh, the Good Samaritan, you know, for example, pays a couple of uh, denarii to the innkeeper and says, you know, give this guy whatever medical treatment he needs, and I'll be back, and I'll pay the bill. I will pay the bill, right? The text he's emphatic there. I will pay the bill, and this right. is an important detail, given that the patient has just been, uh, you know, robbed, 
right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, well, well, you know, two denarii that would have paid for um, anywhere from a from two weeks to about a month. I th- I, th- I think the sort of plurality uh, view is that it would have been about three weeks, mm-hmm. right? Three weeks of medical care. Um, and um, well, look, I mean, that's and 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 that, of course, a denarii is is a day's wage, right? right. For for uh, the median worker. Right. Um, well, the day's wage for a median worker these days is like somewhere around, it's in, in the four, uh, what is it? What's, what's the range? It's like, jeez, uh, well, I'm sorry. I have, since we have a kid, I haven't really been, from, you know, looking at stuff. It's, it's, a, uh, it's 56 to 15 at, 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 at 46. I've got it written down here somewhere. Yeah, 600. I mean, I'm, uh, it's 40. You can fix this in post, right? <laughs> <laughs> what, 90? I've got I've got it right here. I'm looking for it. I've got your I got your chapter right here. Um, right, right, right. Okay, so it's about um, the median uh, uh, income for a median household is about two hundred forty dollars a day. That's not accounting for the fact that you know a lot of house households have two incomes, right? So we'll right. set that question aside. Right. Um, so so basically, he 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 pays what in today's terms would be about you know four hundred eighty bucks. Um, well, you know, the average cost of, of a night's stay in the hospital these days is about $2,300, mm-hmm. right? It's a lot more if you're like in New York than right. say in Kentucky, right? Um, so, so, so anyway, I mean, like if I find somebody who's, who's been um, stabbed and, and, and left by his buddies, um, uh, all, you know, abandoned, right? I, what do I do if I'm going to go and do likewise? I pick him up, do I drive him down the road to the Marriott? And say like, hey, here's my, here's my visa card. You know, make sure he gets the treatment. No, of course not, right? We have right. special hotels in our society for people who need medical treatment. They're called hospitals, mm-hmm. and they're very expensive, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, and I, I mean, the, and the fact is, like, I can't. I just don't have the resources, right? To, I can't. Sh- I can't say like, hey, man, here's some of my health insurance. You know, right? If right. the guy doesn't have health care, right? Um, uh, yeah, so, so I'm meandering here a bit, but right. I mean, it's a problem for me as a Christ follower, if the institutions that administer healthcare in our society, um, make it impossible for me to obey Christ's commands to go and do likewise, that's problematic. And I think those institutions should be changed. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's great. I, I, I think those are the kind of some of the on the ground ways of putting putting this whole notion of 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 justice in a in a context that should not be so divisive on Christian Twitter. Mm-hmm. And and I think that if if we could um, maybe fire the imagination a little bit better um, with with uh, that that sort of kind of um, modeled argument maybe we wouldn't be pitching back and forth between trying to nuance who read who um, on the latest, um, uh, you know, handbook of critical theory. Uh, And and so I I think this is the sort of thing that, that, you know, when, when as a pastor, I begin thinking about what are the things that I can both leave or point to for my congregation. And then 
as an older pastor, what can I do in pointing to some younger guys who could be swept up in the interminable us versus them and say, wait a minute, there's a better way to approach these issues that on the ground make much more sense to talk about when I'm told go and do likewise and and the institutions around me make it impossible to obey. Right. And so, and, and, I, yeah. and, and like, if you're, you know, I think a lot, like all of the excuses I know of for why we shouldn't try to change these institutions um, are like, like pretty roundly excluded by the text. Oh yes. Yes. Um, you know, well, what, what about personal responsibility? Yeah. What about it, man? You've got this guy traveling through the path of Adam, uh, right. either, either by himself Right. Or in the company of people who care so little about him that they're going to leave him in the desert half dead. The text says hemithonics, half dead, like yeah. half dead. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, um, and uh, so, so uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's like super irresponsible. The right? super, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, and we don't we have no idea what the guy's you know moral situation was like. He's unconscious. Like for right. all we know, he's unconscious. Right. The entire time, he doesn't. Right. He doesn't have any right. speaking parts in the story, right. Right? right? And and um and and Christ, I mean, like you know, it's important uh, where the story is set. Yes, and it is. How the story begins, right? Yep. And Jesus could have just said, "There's a guy walking down a road," but he doesn't say that. He picks right. a very specific road, right? Right. That's like super dangerous. I mean, for centuries before and after the time of Christ, this particular patch of desert is 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 notorious, right? For the the rate of violent crime. Right. You know, and um, it's it's it closes. I mean, all the loopholes are closed. Yeah, all the loopholes are closed. Yeah, and of course, that's the reason the story was told. Yeah. I was looking for loopholes, and, yeah. and precisely, and precisely. and so here we go. We close them off. You know, and I I think that, and and that's what I really evaluate. I really think is important about you know what how you've approached this is 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 uh, that personal piety piece does provide, interestingly, subjective loopholes mm -hmm. made by people who claim to that there's an objective truth. <laughs> oh, gosh. When they get into, like, <laughs> accusing the, the people who are arguing with them, like, and again, I don't, like, lots of people, lots of people say lots of stuff, right? Right, so, right, right. Some yeah. of the people I disagree with, for sure, probably deny that there's objective moral truth. But, sure. um, but, but when they get into those kinds of things, I just, I mean, I don't, I, jeez, man. Yeah, it, that's, it, that's, that's a bit frustrating. Yeah, it's it 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 dechristianizes Twitter at that point. So right, and I you know to this point, I mean like uh, to, to this point about individual piety, right? I think there's an awful there's an there's there's this there's this strain of like contemporary evangelicalism where they think that they seem to think that what the Christian life is really about. Um, and uh, therefore what Christian political participation should really be about as a means of engendering this particular Christian way of life. What they think it's all really about is like, you know, don't look at pornography on the internet. Right. Right. And like, seriously, don't look at pornography on the internet, but that's not why, like, that's not why anything, right? right? right. It's right. not the right. point. Right. It's right. not the point. Like, yes, that's bad. You shouldn't do that. Right. Would it be, like, would it be easier uh, to uh, resist that potential temptation if our society were constituted differently? Sure. But is the point of the Christian life to try to make it easier rather than more difficult to not look at porn? Right. 
I don't like, I just don't think that that's what Jesus was about. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, all of that's true, but like, that's, uh, well, I mean, look, that's what Kierkegaard calls like the ethical, mm-hmm. you know, that's the ethical and right. we're not, we're, we're not merely called to be ethical. We're called to work out our faith with fear and trembling. And that, that requires, um, perhaps, uh, re-examining the way that we have heretofore looked at political institutions mm-hmm. and maybe, um, contemplating some possibilities that might initially make us uncomfortable. Sure. Because after all, um, I don't know everything there is to know about God or what God wants. Right. So, um, and if I think I do, I'm probably worshiping an idol. Sure. Right? Sure. Um, so, 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 you know, maybe I need to open myself up to the possibility that like, um, God might have some projects for the church in 2019 that the architects of the moral majority didn't foresee back in the 1980s. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would be something to see if something changed in 40 years. I mean, it, it would be, it would be. Yeah. Well, man, this has been, this has been really good. Um, I, I, uh, I've gone over my normal time that I try to steal from my guests and you've, you've been fantastic. And, uh, and so I'm going to, um, Make sure uh, our readers know where to find you and read you on your blog. Okay. And, and um, we need to find a publisher, man. We need it. We need to uh, get that in front of somebody to get your book out there. That would, that'd be awesome. Yeah. I'm, I am actually in, in conversation, not very far along in conversation with a, a university press for a project that would be more, you know, I'd have to tweak it a bit because it's a, a public university um, press. So I, it, the project would have to be tweaked a bit from its current form. But sure. the idea would be um, to, to take a more academic tack and then perhaps rework the ideas for, a, you know, for trade. Aye. Um, but but yeah, I mean, um, yeah, anyone who's interested, please. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll make a pitch. We'll make a pitch. Awesome. All right, Scott. It's uh, it's 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 a uh, nice to meet you this way, as opposed to just a little Twitter uh, direct messaging here and there and an email. So uh, tell your wife hello and and enjoy uh, enjoy that boy. All right, I sure will. Thank you so much for for having me on. Appreciate yeah, it, man. Hey, as always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope you uh, enjoyed uh, Scott uh, and our conversation. Uh, I'll have in the. A blog post associated with uh, the podcast, uh, a, a way you can follow him on Twitter, uh, a link to his blog where he does a lot of his public thinking, public theology, public philosophy. And uh, uh, and maybe again, if you're a publisher uh, or have access to someone who could help uh, a young guy get published, uh, reach out to me. And I would love to be instrumental, a catalyst in helping Scott get his book published. And so you could uh, email me at docdoc period todd at gmail.com or you can uh, email us at podcast at pathological.com. Either way, we'll get the email. Now, uh, what's to come? Well, I've, I've trolled another guy on Facebook for a while. His name is Bradley Mason. As soon as we can get uh, our coordinates together, he's, uh, his handle is at also a carpenter. And uh, I don't think that's just uh, uh, euphemistic. I believe he is a carpenter, but he's also a great thinker, and uh, don't gasp deeply, but we've actually been talking about analytical tools that are available for our theological work, and um, 
the resistance to those things that are existing in uh, another subset of the Twitter sphere. Uh, that is the uh, those who want to talk about the issue or the word justice. There'll be some others uh, along the way, but uh, it's good to get back in the saddle, back in the groove. And um, I want to, th- again, thank you for listening, keeping up with us. You can subscribe to our email list. You can subscribe in iTunes uh, or your favorite podcatcher to Pathological. Uh, you'd really help us out uh, by uh, going into iTunes and leaving us a rating and a, and a few comments would be great too. In fact, if you'll do that, uh, there's this little cool thing that happens. It'll actually show up on the blog that you've left a cool word. Uh, so um, you want to get your name uh, in the mix on Pathological, then uh, you can do that. So uh, until next time, uh, this has been Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Peace.